good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dale Noel. She's founder and CEO of True Model Management. Uh, plus-size models, according to her, are currently making huge waves in the modeling industry as a whole. Uh, strong representatives like Ashley Graham, Candice Huffin, um, are breaking down the stereotypic ideals of beauty. Maybe some of you know them. They are forcing the beauty industry to celebrate women as a whole, and designers are hopping on board as well. Project Runway c- contestant and couture designer Christian Siriano just recently launched his collection with Lane Bryant, catering to plus-size women. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dale. Thank you so much, Catherine. I'm very happy okay. to be here. Okay. Um, not sure what my first question is, is going to be, but I, I do want to kind of uh, reiterate the fact that you I, have, were a model for 20 years you were in the business, and I assume not a plus-size model, but a regular-size model, whatever that is. But at, at some <laughs> point you decide, <laughs> decided to, to, to make a change, to get into the business of plus-size models and actually to establish your own company. So how did that all come about? Uh, you're correct. I was a successful Ford model for almost 20 years, and uh, early on in my career, I had abundance of work and worked with all the major designers from Ralph Lauren, Oscar de la Rente, Calvin Klein, and a lot of major retailers like Victoria's Secret. And all the while, I was always recruiting other models to be my substitute because I couldn't. There were only certain you know, certain number of hours in the day and I couldn't do everything. So I always felt that there was enough work for everyone and I would train them, scout them, place them with other agents or directly connect them to clients. And I just was known in the industry as a connector and it just naturally did it. So uh, the catalyst to create True was so many requests over the years from models and clients for me to connect them to each other. And in two thousand, a few years ago, I was pregnant, had cancer, and I couldn't go back to work one day. So that's when I transitioned from model to manager, and it really felt like the natural progression to just keep helping people in the industry and teaching others, you know, my trade. Well, I mean, let's backtrack a little because you just kind of skipped over that quickly. But you know, talking about what made you make the change or decide to. Be a well, obviously an owner and the founder of this management company, True Model. But you had cancer and you were pregnant. Those are big, big <laughs> life-changing. Uh, yeah. cri- I, I call them crises. So, what did happen? I mean, all of a sudden, you were you know you were modeling, you were busy, you were recommending other people. Then you decided to get pregnant, and then you had cancer. <laughs> or what? What happened? <laughs> well, all of that was kind of a surprise and all blessings in disguise, I think. A uh, couple of years before I um, got sick and pregnant, I had started True just to manage my own career. So I had already had a professional manager in place, but True really didn't start out to be a management company. It was really just managing Dale. But every day they would call my manager and say, oh, you know, we want Dale on Monday and Wednesday. Can you send a size four to this account, a plus size model here on Friday? And 
I just had friends that I could fill the jobs with, so I was giving them away for the first few years, and then when the day came that I couldn't work anymore, I said, you know, everyone's been asking me for so long to formalize some type of agreement and actually be a manager, so let's just do it. This seems like the perfect time. So I didn't really skip a beat. I had a very matter-of-fact attitude about it, like, okay, this is happening. What am I going to do to fix it? How are we going to move on? And find something positive. I've always been that make lemonade out of lemons type of personality. So it wound up being the catalyst for something great. Well, when you talk about in your agency, you want to empower women of all shapes, colors, sizes. Uh, It sounds like you were gradually getting into it, or the industry was, because you said you would refer plus size models, for instance. I mean, I don't know what year we're talking about, but it and what year are we talking about? Because I, I think of, and I know many people do, models, runway models, you know, they're paper thin. Or they, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, when did the whole plus-size model uh, concept come into play? Well, the plus divisions have been around for quite some time. Uh, my banner years were in the 90s up until the mid-2000s, but uh, at my agency they had a plus modeling division as well as plus for print but the standards for fit modeling which is for production sizing actual models who wear the clothes that are sold to the store they're pretty much like live mannequins with a brain that have to give their feedback after wear testing garments and convey how they can improve the garment before it gets to the store those fit models uh, plus would be 16, size 16 and greater, and plus for print historically was a size 10 and greater. So there was a big disparity on what the term meant and depending who you speak to, and I'm definitely not a person who supports labeling in any way. I definitely think that labels are for the garments and not for people, and I think it's needed when clients call in to ask for a specific type of model. I need a junior model, I need a male model, I need an athletic, I need a plus. That to me is okay, but when they keep putting the word plus in front of model as if they're, you know, different from, they're not like real models or something. I mean, yes. posi- it, pos- plus has a positive connotation, so I don't think it's bad. I just don't think it's always so needed. Well, you know, we talk about plus or full size, and you got the, and I want to mention this, you got the full-figured agency of the year award two years, I don't know if it was two years in a row, but for two years, and something that, that your agency, I guess, is, is quite proud of, so I do want to mention that. But when you talk about plus-size models, I mean, do you talk about, I mean, like, what size, some, and how do women... I guess, you know, as a social worker, I'm interested to get into the modeling business, let's say if you are a size 16 or above, uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, that has a lot to do with self-esteem and feeling attractive mm-hmm. and feeling beautiful and feeling that you want to be out there. And that doesn't always happen when you are a plus size in our society. Not that that's a good thing, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it would seem to me it would be somewhat difficult uh, for plus size models to make that transition from, you know, I'm a model, and, right. uh, yeah. Well, society as a whole has realized that there's more than one way to define beauty, and models come in all shapes and sizes now. So I really um, support 
companies like Lane Bryant, you know, they have the campaign plus is equal. It's very powerful. Ashley Stewart also has campaigns uh, that build confidence in women of all sizes, ethnicities. The tide is definitely shifting. And even though it's happening slowly, I do believe it's in the right direction. You know, women want to be inspired by other women and they want to see themselves reflected in you know, magazines, billboards. I love Beyonce's acceptance speech at the CFDA awards the other night. Uh, you know, the soul has no color, no shape, no form. And uh, I believe that now people are more confident and it's we're building confidence and trying to help our models find their passion and their voice. Now that they're social media, models have more of a voice and they're not just hired or focus is not only on physical beauty. We, we focus on beauty from the inside out. So you're saying that kind of beauty radiates no matter how much you weigh. I mean, there's a Absolutely. certain... Absolutely. You can capture yeah. people. But, uh, Noelle, I mean, you're in the beauty industry. Is there mm-hmm. a standard of beauty that there is, a, you know, if you look at, um, you know, Greek, Sculptures or statues, I mm-hmm, guess, mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. you know, you or art. Is there a standard of beauty for the human body or not? Well, I think there are many standards of beauty now, and it depends who you're speaking with. I believe the promotion of healthy models has been the focus, and I fully support that because we're realizing that you could be a size 10 or 12 and a marathon runner, eat green all day long, and that's your size. You are healthy and happiest at that size. You're radiating beauty and your skin is clear, you know, you're healthy. So that's one type of beauty. We have some clients that call and still say, I need a size 2 model that's 5'11", and a size, you know, uh, 2 or 4 at 5'11", and this size shoe, and it's very, very specific and more of like the former cookie cutter fashion model that you would think of. And then we have many models like, do not send me anyone smaller than a size 14. They might give us other recommendations. Like we would like, one of the requirements might be, we want toned skin at a 14 or we want someone that's unique. We get more requests now that beauty is unique. So if it's something you don't see every day, you know, that would never have been considered, quote-unquote, beautiful before. They want memorable people. Dale, but does that have to do, obviously, with what product they're marketing? I mean, like you want somebody who is overweight or or a plus-size model to to be, uh, you know, to to represent uh, whatever the, you know, whatever whatever they're trying to market, uh, would sell to that particular group of people. Is that it or no? Well, actually, that's a, there are so many facets to the fashion and beauty and advertising industry. So what you're describing sounds like our commercial and lifestyle division, that you can have you know an 80-year-old woman that's 411 in an ad, and you know you could have someone who's very 
overweight and unhealthy doing a pharmaceutical ad for some type of drug to help them feel better, you know, that type of modeling. So if we're talking from that sense, you could have anything, you know, they're all different types of models. But if you're talking more mainstream fashion and, you know, cosmetics and beauty products, things like that, um, they are definitely opening up the parameters as well, because you'll see models, as you mentioned before, Candace Hefine and Ashley Graham and some of the curvier models that are modeling in high fashion as well as commercial brands. Would you say that, I mean, is this an issue or a problem in the industry that, that you've had to deal with that, you know, people, Americans, I'll say particularly, are getting heavier and heavier and, and not healthy because they are mm-hmm. heavy, whether they have diabetes, heart disease, uh, you know, 50% of the Americans are overweight in terms of how we would define a healthy body, not necessarily the shape of your body, just in terms of how much you weigh, and that that's an issue, And but yet if you are selling your clothes, for instance, you're selling them to, you know, have that population, are you sort of adding to the problem or is, I'd like to get your take on that. Exactly. For me, I, it is a very fine line. I do not support unhealthy ways of most Americans and the movement towards accepting people of all sizes and shapes and curves is not to accept or promote obesity at all. Um, so it's, it's the delicate balance between promoting accept yourself if you are a bigger frame and bigger person, but I believe that everyone, no matter what size you are, how tall you are, where you come from, you should be the best version of yourself. So we're always trying to incorporate all of our models from every division to participate in community events that support and promote health and wellness. We meet for yoga every week in Bryant Park. We host our own classes. Many of our models are Pilates instructors or physical uh, trainers. And it, it is a difficult, it's a difficult area to navigate because we have some women that are plus size and men that are big and tall that work out all the time are so healthy. But you know, the woman might be a 14 and she's all muscle and, you know, skin and muscle and the guy might be bigger bone and taller than average and they wouldn't be accepted, you know, in the industry anymore. But um, I do think no matter what size you are, you should be making healthy choices and keep your mind, body, and your soul, like, connected and strong. So it's not just plus size. It has to do also with a lot of other factors, plus but healthy. I mean, is there a difference, a huge, well, a huge difference between a plus size 14 and a plus size, I don't know, what size do you go up to? Um, At the moment, we have up to size 24, and the larger sizes are mainly for the fit modeling because that is what, the vendors are requesting to fit clothes that actually go to the store. Um, But as far as promoting in ads, most of them are maximum size 18 because I really, you know, once you're getting up to those larger numbers, I question 
how healthy you can be. Yeah, you know, I, I guess so it would be the I same as it, yeah, comparing it to the other end, because if you're six feet tall and a size two, I would question how healthy you can be also. Absolutely. I'm a great advocate for NIDA, the National Eating Disorders Association, and I suffered from anorexia nervosa myself. And it, it's, I find it uh, challenging when I'm with, you know, the plus community and they're like, no, you don't understand. I was like, no, well, you're not including me sometimes. That, you know, I mean, I've been healthy and a size 6, 8 for decades, but, you know, when I was 12 years old, I was very sick. And uh, I suffered from self-esteem and perfectionism. I, you know, had what they call orthorexia also. I worked out too much. Like anything in excess is not healthy. So we want to find that moderate, you know, the balance between, you know, eating the right amount, eating the right foods, exercising a good amount, not overdoing and not underdoing. Because we do find or I've met throughout the industry models who were very unhealthy and looked great in the magazines according to the standards. You know, we try and screen the models as best as we can to make sure no one is suffering from, you know, diseases like anorexia or bulimia. I'm not a doctor, but I am a health coach. So, and I was an anorexic myself, so I can notice some of the signs. And we try to guide them to organizations that can help them and, you know, find You have a degree in health, in health counseling, I understand. I don't know at what point you got it, but it, it, seems, to, uh, it, it seems to me it would be very helpful in this particular industry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Uh, yes, I have a certification in uh, health coaching, and I got it in 2010. And I don't formally practice it as a separate business, but I do incorporate it in helping the models and screening different uh, holistic counselors or doctors to send models to if they need it. So luckily we have had mostly healthy models and haven't had any issues yet, but we're always on the lookout and here to help and support anyone that needs it. Is your company unique? Would you say other companies do the same? Ones who work with plus-size models or women of all different sizes and shapes? Um, is, is that something or is, is that they're concerned with as well, the health of their models, would you say? or mm-hmm. is, is that, yeah. I can't speak for the entire industry, but I do know we're one of the pioneers in embracing diversity and really being very supportive. Um, we generally care about our models' well-being and, you know, from a health and wellness perspective, we provide training, we help build confidence, we, you know, host and support many philanthropic events that uh, our models have been referred to as role model citizens in several instances, and a few of them have their own charities. And uh, basically, we are here for them, I feel, more than any other manager or agent that I've encountered in my career. And I felt that was something that was lacking when I was in the industry. It was like, I was pretty much on my own, and luckily I had built a strong character and was able to navigate, but it was not easy. I mean, I was a fit model, so I was a size, depending on the client, a full size 6 or a slim size 8, and I was standing next to many and of the... how tall are you? I'm 5'8", and 
that is kind of the maximum height for fit modeling because you're supposed to be more of the average consumer. And, uh, you know, I was very fit, athletic, but I would stand next to uh, these major designers, high school girls that were, you know, 5'11", 6 feet tall and size 0, size 2, really, really narrow frames. And designers used to think I was huge, you know, and I'm pretty sure I was healthier than most of them. (laughs) And, you know, back in the 90s, it wasn't that common that model, I mean, models who had muscles and, you know, it started to change a little bit with Cindy Crawford and a few of the models who were quote-unquote fuller. (laughs) By the way, they were, like, smaller than I was, and I was slim for U.S. standards. Um, You know, it's interesting, Noelle, that you got, I mean, because you you go way back, you talk about when you were 12, you were anorexic. I want to just talk about that briefly, about how long you were anorexic. And then you overcame that and then went into the modeling industry and became a model, which is interesting because that does kind of fit into sort of you could perpetuate your anorexia or bulimia, uh, mm-hmm. that particular industry. So how did you, you know, where, you know, how did you change that? What happened? How did you, I don't know if you can define it, but at 12 sure. years old, sort of, do you go back? What cause mm-hmm. the anorexia sure. or do you know or yeah yeah i do i've um you know really reflected on it and fully cured i was a competitive baton twirler and gymnast always competing and training 6 to 8 hours a day i was ultra fit and i basically our coach had put us on a health food diet so i did everything you know, 120%, and I cut out fat. Like, it would probably be the perfect diet for me to be on now. <laughs> um, uh, cut calories, and, you know, I'd eat steamed vegetables, and just, uh, they said that peanut butter and bananas kept me alive, basically, because I was eating but at first, but I just wasn't eating enough calories. I was always just sinewy, uh, had the sinewy, thin build naturally, and when I continued to work out intensely and ate less and um, very little fat in my diet, I weighed, well, I was short then, too, as a gymnast, and I was 4'11", but I went down to 58 pounds. And the doctors, I was, from diagnosis to cure was approximately two years, and it was a very difficult time. Um, but once I really decided that I was going to change my life because I was not happy, I just flipped the switch and went full steam ahead. My doctors couldn't believe how quickly I put weight on and was able to maintain it and worked out, but did it more moderately. And, uh, I was fully cured within two years, which is not, which is not typical. That is Yeah. yeah, And, and my mind, I completely changed it. I was so happy, and I looked back, and I was like, wow, I never want to do that again. I put my family through torture. That, you know, doctors are telling my parents, like, we need to put her in the hospital very soon, and she might not make it, <laughs> you know. So yeah. um, it, was pre- it was pretty bad. I was a, skeleton, a human skeleton. And, um, well, it sounds and like then you took I never all that. Back. Yeah, well, you took, but 
it, I mean, obviously, you look ahead. You said you turned lemon, lemons into lemonade, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but and you certainly did. You kind of took those skills. I'm always interested. In, I mean, I don't know if you call it skills, but your sort of obsession with weight and and body image and all of that, and instead of doing it in a negative way, I mean, you really made it into a positive business because mm-hmm. you are concerned with weight and health and it, 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 sort of the same issues, but in a good way, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's always striving for that balance. And, you know, I am a very intense person, so when I do something, I do it 100%. And, uh, but I definitely have learned over the years, you know, what makes a person happy and healthy. And everyone has a little bit different path, but my goal is to help others, you know, find their passion, find their happiness, become independent, help to empower them, and, you know, find win-win-win situations. So what would you do, a young woman who's interested in becoming a model, or the kind of model that you're talking about, or being connected with your agency, uh, what would you recommend? What do they do? How do they get involved? Um, they can get involved first by connecting with us on our website, and if they want to become a model at truemodel.net, that's T-R-U-E-M-O-D-E-L.net, um, you can register to become a model and send some photos of yourself, a little bit about yourself, and we have agents here to review and contact people who are interested in being a model. You can follow us on social media at True Model MGT. Like for Instagram and for Twitter. What age does that usually, if say one is thinking or has a daughter or a son, I guess, who's interested in modeling, um, is that in high school? When do you start? At True, we start usually around 18. Uh, we are open to starting and developing models at younger ages if they have a very unique, significant, um, uh, if they have a flexible schedule, but if they have um, some unique qualities and we won't need to develop them for a while. But usually we'd like to start working them at 18. I really want uh, everyone to focus on education and not be distracted. Even some of our college models, you know, I, I don't want to overburden them with too much if they're, you know, their parents have to be in agreement. It's really up to their parents how much they want to dedicate. But Well, you are a socially responsible agency. Um, it certainly sounds that way. I mean, all the stuff you do, but the, the philanthropy um, and encouraging women and men to become models in a very healthy, healthy way, uh, which is a good thing. Do you, do you have children? I do. I have a daughter who's five years old. Now, what about your daughter? Last question. Would you recommend that she becomes a model or would you encourage her or, you know, or to be a model and or part of your business? Well, I would like to guide her to find her own passion if she really would like to do that when she's older. I would support it and make sure she does it in a smart way. I think that modeling can be a great platform 
for doing better for the world and your community. There are, you know, many people listening and watching and looking up to models and different talent in the industry. So I think if you're socially responsible and make sure you're education, you know, you're ed- educated and doing good things, I think it could blend nicely in with the career. If you're just going to take pretty pictures and neglect the rest, I don't think it's such a great idea. Um, but I would support whatever she wants to do as long as it's uh, healthy and legal. <laughs> yeah. well, that's good advice from a mother. That's good. Yeah, that, that, that works well. Uh, I think modeling is a lot tougher than people think. We didn't really get into that. There is a glamour attached to it. and Yes, it is glamorous, but the other side of it is it's grueling at the same time, I, I, I think, at least uh, friends that I know who are in the business. So um, it's, it's not an easy job. Oh, it's not at all. I do think that is a misconception that you just go in and you look glamorous and it's like that 24-7, but there is a lot of hard work, grit, uncomfortable situations. It's very physically demanding and, you know, emotionally straining as well. Um, You know, a lot of times, even with the good changes that are going on in the industry, you know, you might be looked at as an object, you know, and you're just, you know, your feelings aren't always taken into consideration. You need very thick skin and to be resilient and have a very positive, cheerful disposition to do well. Yeah, I think resilience is the key. Um, we have to say goodbye. It has been uh, great talking to you this morning, and I want to mention your website uh, once more, truemodel.net. And we've been talking to Dale Noel, who is founder and CEO of True Model Management. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much, Catherine. And if any great. listeners want to follow me directly, they can find me on Twitter at Dale Noel underscore true, T-R-U-E. Great. So. Thank Thanks. you so much. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Uh, joining me this morning is Kenneth Doka, Ph.D., Dr. Kenneth Doka. His new book is Grief is a Journey, Finding Your Path Through Loss. Uh, Dr. Doka is a professor of gerontology at the Graduate School of the College of New Rochelle and senior consultant to the Hospice Foundation of America. And he's written many, many, many books. I couldn't list them all. Um, he has been interviewed on CNN and Nightline. He's an ordained Lutheran minister and a consultant to medical, nursing, funeral service, and hospice organizations, as well as businesses and educational and social service agencies. Welcome to the show. Nice to Thank have you, you so on. Much. Yes. Thank you for I, having you me, gave me permi- Yes, you have given me permission to call you Kenneth, so I will do that, Dr. Doka. All right, so we're going to be talking in your, your new book, Grief is a Journey, Finding Your Path Through Loss. And you say, um, I'm just going to give the opening, and then I want to explain you know, what you mean by this, but um, there's no one-size-fits-all way to cope with loss, which is kind of, you know, the, I, I, I guess this is what the book is all about, um, mm-hmm. that, there's an expectation when we grieve and we've lost something. It doesn't necessarily have to be death, but there are many other kinds of losses, so we'll talk about that. But um, there isn't a one-size-fits-all, although I think society sometimes, and even the people who want to support us, sort of get hooked into that, uh, which is not a good thing. So uh, what does that mean, one, one size doesn't fit all when you're well, grieving? You know- you know, I, I often think that um, when people approach grief, they they have, uh, if they think about it at all, there's sort of two models that are prevalent. What I call an explicit model of grief, which is, you know, kind of the old stage model of grief and uh, that you're going to go through this stage and then that stage and then a third stage and finally you'll reach acceptance. And then I think the other model that people have is I'm going to start out real low, you know, it's, it's a terrible event, and then it's going to get better. And what we've known, we've really been studying grief now for you know, almost 50 years, really intensely. And what we've learned is that, you know, that first of all, there really are no stages. There are no universal stages. There are very, very personal pathways. And we also found, I, I like to use the metaphor in my work a lot, of that grief is a roller coaster. You have your ups and your downs, your your highs and your lows. Very often the very beginning is not the toughest part of it because in the very beginning of it, you're... Um you're still in a state of shock. Um, you're, um, e- even if the death was expected, it's never quite expected when it comes, you know. And you're still in a state of shock. You're getting a lot of support. You're busy. Uh, and it's usually a few weeks after that you really hit your first low, you know. Um, I remember I one widow who... I think, that, Doctor, I think that's really true and, and very important because I think if you lose somebody, I know when I lost my father, it, was a, it wasn't a shock because it was expected, but the real loss came after when he wasn't at an event or a birth of a child. Sure, or, you know, yeah, and, and all those... Then, yeah. Yeah, all those milestones, all those surges, yeah. You know, and, and that continues. It never, you know, we, I think one of the myths is we get over grief. You know, we, we, generally we feel better. Sometimes we even grow as we cope with loss. But that doesn't mean we won't be surprised, you know, that there may be developmental pieces years later when, you know, maybe your first grandchild is born, um, where you think, gee, I wish my father were alive to see this. 
What about you the know, stages? Because you say there are no, you know, you mentioned that the sort of those traditional, I, I thought of the Kubler-Ross stages, that's what I was trained in as a social worker, and um, that, uh, you know, we respond going through all those stages, and you say not true because you talk about, what, the five tasks of grief, which are different. Um, yeah, yeah, and, 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 and the notion of, you know, the notion of stages was, um, that you know, we all went through this universal pattern. Of course, we're we're not all alike. We we're different in so many ways. And and you know, in that kind of model was. A, and again, Kubler Ross's work was was very important for its time. It really started a dialogue. It started a conversation. It, it, it in many ways intensified the study of grief. But one of the first things we learned was that. Um, that the concept of universal stages really doesn't work. It's not been validated in the literature, uh, in the, in the research. You know, and I always tell people, you wouldn't want to be treated by an oncologist who's using uh, a 50-year-old model. Uh, you certainly, you know, want a grief therapist who knows the most current research in the field. I would agree. So let's start out with that first one, because I think that you talk about in the five... Uh, tasks of grief, that acknowledging the loss, because I think that's a real issue for many individuals, families don't want to acknowledge the loss and want to just go on. You know how when someone, often when someone dies, right after they die, no one can mention their name again to the person yeah, who's yeah. grieving. And it's always like, well, they, and, and, and that's really something that I, unfortunately, is very common. So that's really maybe an example of not wanting to acknowledge the loss and just, you have to go on from here now. We're not going to talk about that person. Yeah, yeah, and and it's really important to say no. This loss happened. It, it's real, you know. And sometimes we we even minimize it, you know, particularly with non-death related losses. Okay, I lost my job. I'll find another one. But that may have really hurt, and that really may have given us grief, um, you know. And and by the way, here I'm building on the work of William Warden, who talks about the tasks of grief, and was really one of the first moves away from the notion of stages. And, and the notion of these tasks are that they don't come in any order, you know, and you're working on them simultaneously all the time. All right, so you just mentioned it doesn't have to be death necessarily. Obviously, there are so many losses. I mean, you can become divorced, disabled, lose your job, break up with somebody, um, have, suffer a miscarriage. I'm listing the ones I have here. But, um, and those are all can be extremely devastating losses. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that when Freud wrote his first article on grief, um, Mourning and Melancholia, now this is, is, is close to 100 years ago when he first wrote this, you know, he always started with a case study. And his case study in this one was a bride abandoned at the altar. And I think he was telling us it's, it's not about death, it's about loss. So, you know, you have a bride whose, whose husband doesn't show up or his prospective husband doesn't show up. And that's what he uses in his case of grief. That's a that's a good example. <laughs> yeah, fascinating, um, isn't it? Yeah, it is. You, you, uh, um, okay, so that's an example. Your husband doesn't, or your husband, or yeah, yeah, husband you know, didn't you, show you up. You have a plan to get married, and nobody shows. You know. Yeah. Right. Um, um, but again, all kinds of losses. You know, I, I, I think one of my colleagues, Dick Callis, said, you know, whatever you love can be lost, and when you lose that, you grieve. So let's give examples of that in your practice and in the work you do. Specific sure. examples. Uh, yeah, you know, individual cases where people have maybe gone through it. Well, what we're saying there's not a right or a wrong way. So how do we address it? Somebody, let's take a loss that isn't necessarily a death, but something. Um, one become, I've dealt a lot with 
uh, as a social worker with uh, patients or clients who have become disabled, wheelchair bound. Yeah, so, sure. Oh, yeah. And and I think the first thing you do, you know, and, and again, the notion is that. You know, they have certain issues or, or certain tasks that they have to work through. The first one is to say, yeah, you know, this is terrible. This is not what I wanted in my life. This is not how I envisioned it. And then I think they, you know, that another task they have to deal with is to deal with the emotions, the anger, the, the guilt, the sadness, you know, whatever, whatever they're experiencing as part of that. And then, you know, a very important task is that you always have to adjust to a life that's now been changed by the loss. And, and, you know, and think about it, you know, with, with a spouse, uh, you know, we have to almost like relearn the world. Let's say if your spouse dies, you know, all of a sudden you're cooking for one. Uh, all of a sudden you're eating alone. All of a sudden you're sleeping alone. You know, these are all adjustments, some minor, some major, um, that have to be made. And then, you know, you have to relocate the person. And what we mean by relocating the person is that the person's still part of you. You know, you, you still, you talk about your father. You remember your father. Um, he's part of your life still, but in a different way than he was before. And then sometimes some losses really challenge your beliefs. You know, how could, how could God allow this? You know, why is the world so unfair? Whether it's, you know, whatever our spirituality is, it can be challenged by this loss. You know, I always thought if I worked hard and did a good job, you know, then, then you know, I'd always have a job. And now I've been downsized. Yeah. And that's not necessarily true, and you have to accept that. What about loss of a child? I mean, that is the worst. I mean, the worst. I think loss. Yeah, um, yeah. I always, I always like what what a colleague of mine says, Rabbi Earl Groman, who says the worst loss is the one you're experiencing right now. Um, you know, but but I think I think losing a child at any age is is a terrible loss. Some of my work has even been with you know older people who've lost adult children, and and you know everybody understands you need sympathy when your 12 year old son dies, but when you're you know 85 and your 52 year old son dies, people may not be as empathic. You know, I have a lot of, you know, people who come to me and say, you know, they always ask, how's the wife, how's the children doing? Nobody asks how I'm doing, you know? Um, and, and I think it's, it's, it's recognizing, you know, we don't expect, no matter how old the child is, we never expect our children to predecease us. Uh, and I would assume, though, Dr. Doka, that that's changing as we live longer. If we're going to be 85, 95, or even 100, our children can, will Die of a heart, well, yeah. you know, cancer or heart attacks, forties, fifties, sixties, and you will at one will outlive them. So it would seem to me yeah, that, that we never be... expect that. You know, we yeah. never expect that. So how do um, you deal with let's specific, like an eighty-five-year-old, let's say, who has lost their fifty-year-old son or daughter, sixty-year-old son or daughter? Yeah, yeah. I, I think the first thing you do is just acknowledge, you know, and that's such an important thing is just, you know, it's just validating. Yeah, this this is, you know, it's not just how is the wife doing and how is your daughter-in-law doing and how are your grandkids doing, but how are you doing? You know, just to be there empathically with them, to let them talk about what this experience has meant for them. You know, there's no magic with grief. It's a long, hard process. Um, but I think the key is, to recognize that you know that uh, that we need to validate this loss, we need to say, "Yeah, I I can understand why you're grieving," and and tell me about it, and tell tell me what you're experiencing. So many of the times we try to give you know um, what I call band aids, you know, or bromides, you know. Uh, oh well, you know. Uh, 
you know, even like when an older parent, let's take it the other way around. You're 60 years old and your, your parent dies at 85 years old, you know, and everybody comes up to you and says, well, she had a wonderful life and she lived yeah. for so long and, you know, but at the same point in time, you know, what, what could you expect? And the answer is, you know, she was always there for me. I expected her always to be there for me. You know, loss is never Or you easy. were lucky to have her for so long or lucky to yeah, have him yeah, for so yeah. long. But the, that, the other side of that, you've had them for so long, so the, the grief can be because you've known them longer than, let's say, if your parent died when you were 30. So it, your whole life has been involved with that parent and not so much if they've died when you were younger. But that's another yeah, piece to yeah. it. Yeah, it's still, it's still an intense and caring relationship. What about, and I think because I think as people are living longer, uh, it's... I know a lot of my friends, for instance, and, and colleagues uh, who are healthy have children now who are not necessarily dying, but diagnosed with cancer and horrific kinds of diseases that that sort of never happened before either. In, in some ways, you have a healthier, older generation, and then you have um, people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and particularly with cancer, I've noticed, and, and that's a loss for a parent to, to deal with a, a an adult child who has cancer, for instance. I mean, do you find yeah. that in your practice? Oh, very definitely. And and you know, and again, you know, one of the, there, there's a term that we use in the field called anticipatory grief, which is you know both very important and in some ways a misnomer. It was originally meant that you would anticipate a death, so you think, oh, my kid has cancer, they may die. But really, what you're dealing with is is all the losses that you associated with the illness. Um, you know, maybe the the child's less healthy now. They're they've had to give up their job. Um, you've you've lost your assumption about the world. You know, your assumption, you know, all our assumptions of the world is that, you know, that, that we'll be healthy, our kids will be healthy, eventually we'll die, they'll outlive us, uh, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden our, our notion of the world is fair and kind and benign is shattered. Is there a time frame for grief? I mean, we hear this all, you know, it's been a year, it's been six months, or it's been even two years, you should get over it, or somehow you you have to get over the loss, whatever it is. Yeah, and, and, and you know, and again, there really, isn't a t- there really isn't a time frame. I think, you know, depending on the nature of the loss, how serious it is, I think the first year is very, very tough. Uh, sometimes the second year is very tough, just for the reason that you're saying, because you're getting a lot of support the first year, and the second year people are saying to you, oh, come on now, it's been a while, you know, um, move on. And, um, and, and so, you know, and then after that, what I usually look for is I usually say, okay, you're still on that roller coaster, you still have your ups and downs, you still have your bad days, but are your bad days less frequent now than they were six months ago? Do they come less often? Uh, do they last as long? And usually after a couple of years, most people will say, you know, you're right. I, I still have an occasional bad day, but they don't come as often. They don't last as long. Um, they're not as, as, as bad as they were in the beginning. And, and that's usually a good sign. But again, even years later, you'll have what we call these grief surges. Um, you know, I have a father uh, that I've counseled who's, um, who used to love to watch baseball with his son. You know, I mean, even, they were both adults, and his son died in his 40s, and this guy's in his 60s. And, you know, and both the, um, 
both the opening of the season, baseball season, and uh, and the World Series are always tough times for him because those were times he'd always have you know an intense interaction with his son. They'd sit down, they'd have a beer, they'd watch a game, maybe they'd go to a game, you know. And 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 there's a tremendous sense of loneliness that comes. And it's been about eight or nine years now, but always on those times, those are tough times. Yeah. So there were stressful times. Stressful. You know, stressful triggers, I guess, for some of this. Yeah, the green good word, returning. triggers, yeah. yeah. But what, I have another question because um, one of the things I think particularly if someone's spouse dies or a partner breaks up with you um, or you break up with a partner, um, do you find that um, people have difficulty when they do start feeling better, that they feel guilty? Maybe they, you know, they have a new relationship, uh, you know, they're, let's say they're their partner or spouse has died, and now they found someone else, and they are happy. And that kind of having to wrestle with that guilt of of not feeling, you know, of you know, not gre- of of just feeling guilty about being happy. I guess is what I'm saying. Oh yeah, yeah. We we call, actually have a word for that. We call it um, uh, recovery guilt. <laughs> Recovery guilt, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it goes back to, to some of the work by Margaret Miles and, and Alice Demme years ago. You know, when you talk about guilt, guilt can be so complex. We can feel guilty, and again, guilt, you know, as, as, we, as, you know, as we all know, guilt doesn't have to be rational to be real, and what I mean by that is it may not make sense to an outsider who says, why are you feeling guilty about that? But it doesn't mean we're not feeling guilty about it. And, you know, and it could be, for instance, you know, we feel guilty about causing the death. And as I said, it may not be realistic, but I've had lots of people come to me and said, well, you know, I should have made him stop smoking. I should have made him go to the doctor. I should have checked, had him check this out. And then you have role guilt. You know, I should have been a better mother, father, sister, brother, son. Um, and then you have... Um, a moral guilt, you know, this is a punishment for something that I did, you know, God's punishing me or the world is punishing me. And then you have, reco- you know, recovery guilt, I'm feeling good and I'm feeling bad about feeling guilt, good, I'm feeling guilty. You have grief guilt too, you have guilty, people feel guilty that it's taking too long, they're, they're not functioning well. You know, they'll feel guilty about that and sometimes they'll feel guilty about surviving. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I did a lot of work after 9-11 because I'm, I'm, you know, based outside of New York City. And one of the things that was really very, you know, very interesting is many of the people who, um, who were saved from the towers, who got out safely or maybe were late, you know, all those individual stories. Uh, a lot of them said, you know, I, I could have been me. I should have been there. And some people had this sense of, of you know, of guilt about it. You know, I, I, it, it, it should have been me rather than this person, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, that's sort of like I, I am sort of, as you're talking, it's related to also survivors guilt when it comes to the Holocaust. I think there's a lot of sure, that, too. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's that same concept. Um, and, and, uh, and what about veterans? I mean, now, you know, we have this huge veteran population of, uh, you know, of veterans who have died and spouses who have survived. Um, do you have many clients who fit into, you know, who are dealing or wrestling with that? Yeah, uh, uh, very often. And, and, you know, and that's probably one of the things we, we need to really recognize and acknowledge, you know, that, you know, that, um, that when, you're, when you're fighting in, in another country and, and you're fighting alongside of people, you can become, you know, you're, you're really literally um, putting your life in their hands. 
Um, and, and, and soldiers will, of course, you know, people in the military will form very close bonds with one another. Um, and then often, you know, there's no, when somebody dies, um, you know, the soldier said, well, I'll just go out there and, and, you know, and, 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 and fight again. But there's nobody who's really supporting these veterans who have dealt with multiple losses of people they really cared about. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going through the list. There are so many different kinds of losses, and I think one of the things is, is the aging population, um, baby boomers, of which I am a baby boomer. Uh, uh, me but, as well. <laughs> yeah, okay. So the losses, uh, then you can discuss it per, uh, professionally and personally. The, the, the loss that comes with aging, and I, I think that, you know, um, which, you know, people living longer, um, you, I, I think there's a whole really huge yeah and the losses what things that you can't do anymore your health let's talk about some of those and how you deal with that or how you deal with your your patients or your clients when it comes to the aging process yeah yeah and and I think one of the most difficult you know and and again you know um, I I imagine you drive a car right yes well you know remember the excitement when you first got your driver's license I do. No one wanted to drive with me, but I do remember it. <laughs> but yeah, but think about giving that up now. Yeah. I mean, that's a profound loss in in older persons when they have to surrender a license, which was once, you know, a very you know a very important achievement in their development. And and again, you know, as I said, it's it's letting people say, yeah, you know, it's okay to mourn that, you know, and and, and that's what we don't do well as a society. So many times, you know, Dad, don't worry about it. It's safer. You know, you don't have to get in the car. You need anything, you give me a call, I'll drive you, you know? Um, and there's no validation of, yeah, this really is a, is a mark, isn't it? Um, you know, this really is a serious loss. So how, I mean, I know that's a, that, I'm glad you brought that up because that is an issue with aging parents and maybe they should give up their license, but they don't. And how do you, one, get them to do that? And then you just gave examples of that's really not a way to, to, sort of uh, show your, that you're empathetic or to their, you know, how they feel about losing their independence. How do you deal with that? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it really is. You know, and, 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 you know, and again, there's no, there's no magic here. It's, it's just saying to a person, this is tough. Let's talk about it. Uh, what really bothers you about it? Um, um, you know, how, how can we help you adjust to it? What are some of the feelings that it arouses? Um, you know, sometimes it helps to maybe have some kind of, you know, not necessarily, well, even with that one, maybe some kind of a ritual around it. Ritual is one of the ways we deal with loss. But, but again, you know, we have to be creative, we have to be empathic, but most of all, we have to be validating. You know, yeah, these absolutely. losses do count. And, and what I do hear you saying is being understanding what the loss yeah. means to that person, that unique individual person, which obviously which comes across in your book. Um, we only have about a minute left, so I want to um, mention your book again, obviously. People can buy it at Amazon bookstores everywhere. Grief is a Journey, Finding Your Path Through Loss, Dr. Kenneth Doka. 
and uh, what website can we go to? Oh, well, I think you can yeah. go to uh, uh, Simon & Schuster to the Atria website. Um, I have a website, drkendoka.com, uh, that people can find information about it. Uh, you know, it's produced, it's, it's done by Atria, which is from Simon & Schuster. And, of course, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, any of the, the books, you know, the bookstores uh, will have it. Yeah, I think it's an important book because it really does offer, and we've talked about just, you know, kind of a smattering, a few of the strategies to help coping with grief, um, but, you know, it is very specific, and um, I, we can't get through, I don't think we can go through this journey without suffering a loss, all of us, that's just the way it is, so. Multiple losses, yeah, yeah. Multiple losses, exactly, yes. Well, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Oh, thank you for having yeah. me, it's really been a delight to talk with you. Dr. Kenneth J. Doka. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinesox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 